درود مردم شریف ایران من شهر رفشار هستم از پالیتکس 365 خوش آمدید به برنامه جدید امروز ما یک کارشناس روابط بین المللی خاورمیانه به برنامه پیوسته آقای جورجیو کافیرو از گروه گالف استیت آنالیتیکس در واشنگتن دی سی ایشون چند تا مقاله و چند تا موارد مختلف مقاله نوشتن انتشار کردن صاحب نظر خیلی برجسته هستن در واشنگتن دی سی در این موارد و میخواستیم حتما دعوتشون کنیم که ایشون بیاد برنامه ما و ما رو روشن کنه در مورد روابط واقعا حرکت های جدیدی که ایران در این سال پیش اجرا کرده در خاورمیانه و واقعا هدف ایران چیه اثر این حرکت چی ممکنه باشه در مورد این جنبش ملی و سرکوبای ملت که الان ما همش شاهدش هستیم آقای جورج کفیه را خوش آمدید جورج ویلکم تو آر پروگرام Please tell us a little bit about yourself, about your firm, and then we'll go into Iran's regional political outreach. Thank you so much for joining us. It's so great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on as your guest today. Um, my interest in the Persian Gulf really started in the early 2000s, back when I was a high school student. There uh, were uh, two huge events that took place, the 9-11 attacks in 2001, and then the U.S. and U.K.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. And I think those were kind of, as I said, the two main events that really got me so interested in this part of the world. Then as an undergrad and graduate student, I uh, focused on this region, studied uh, the Persian Gulf and the greater Middle East, moved to D.C. in 2012 to uh, begin a career as a foreign policy analyst. And early on, On, I put together a monthly monitor report that focused on geopolitical developments in the Gulf Cooperation Council states. I had the privilege of working with a number of scholars and former U.S. diplomats. And then from there, uh, there were different companies that reached out to me uh, to inquire about consulting services. And then it got to a point where I just decided to sort of move the monthly newsletter into sort of a full-fledged consultancy. So ever since late 2015, I've been working full-time for Gulf State Analytics. We do a lot of consulting work for different public and private sector entities, uh, providing briefings for U.S. diplomats over at the State Department, doing a lot of work for financial institutions, different consultancies, various research groups all over the world. And We're quite active in the media, too. I frequently appear on networks such as Al Jazeera, Bloomberg, TRT World, and many others to sort of provide hot take assessments of events in the Middle East as they unfold. And I'm based here in, in Washington, D.C., but I make it out to the Persian Gulf maybe about two or three times a year. Obviously, because of COVID, there was a little bit of an interruption to the global travel, but Thankfully, in the last one or two years or so, uh, my travel has, has thankfully resumed. Well, I'm, I'm jealous. Uh, you know, uh, we all love, uh, of course, Iran, but the Middle East and the diversity of the cultures and uh, the language and the heritage and the society there. It's just something obviously of interest to both of us. So uh, I'm glad we're talking. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. 
Uh, you know, as we watch the events uh, uh, unfold in Iran, the difficult events from September to Masa Amini's death to now, uh, so much has gone on. The Iranian diaspora all over the world uh, just exploded with compassion and passion in uh, speaking out uh, for their people, for the people of Iran being their voice. Uh, but they also watch global politics and they understand uh, geopolitics. Iranians are much more versed in uh, geopolitics and international uh, relations than most communities because we had to be. Uh, we live in a culture and society that's deeply impacted by regional and geopolitics. So as we watch uh, what Iran's domestic problems are, and we watch what Iran is doing uh, internationally with outreach to Saudi Arabia and other countries, um, Raisi traveling in African states recently, uh, what can we make of this? You know, I know you may have a briefing for, let's say, State Department or private sector, public sector clients, but objectively, what can you ascertain from Iran's uh, posture with its regional neighbors right now? Well, Iran's government is obviously dealing with the reality of the very uh, harsh and crippling economic sanctions that Western countries, namely the United States, are imposing on Iran. And the leadership in Tehran is very focused on trying to counter and circumvent these sanctions. And Iran is doing so by sort of um, really investing in these efforts to improve ties with all of its neighbors, including some neighbors such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE that have historically had very tense and troubled relations with Iran. And we obviously saw in March of this year, there was the historic renormalization agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, also in 2022, Kuwait and UAE uh, took steps to uh, improve their diplomatic relations with Iran, send ambassadors back to Tehran. We're also seeing the Iranians pursue what is overall a look east foreign policy orientation. I think when Rouhani was the president, uh, the leadership in Iran had some sort of optimism, some sort of hope about something happening that could result in the JCPOA being revived. Uh, with the Raisi administration, I think the expectations are much lower about any sort of rapprochement with the West. And so Iran is now really doubling down on efforts to get closer to China, Russia, Central Asian republics, GCC countries, and also countries throughout the global south um, in light, for example, of Raisi doing a recent tour to Latin America that brought him to Venezuela, Nicaragua and Cuba, and also Iran's outreach to Africa. Iran is basically trying to escape from isolation by deepening its ties with as many non-Western countries as possible. Right. And, you know, uh... Iran's behavior reminds me of what we say in this country, which is what does every first term president want? A second term. And what does every dictator want? To stay in power. Uh, and nothing yeah. makes you look more, in this case, in the US case, presidential, or in Iran's case, more legitimate than reaching out to legitimate governments, whether they're not US allies or not. Uh, it's another matter, but uh, Iran's trying to position itself as a, a global player. It always has been. Uh, and with domestic politics pressuring its international relations, 
we're all wondering uh, what is the outcome? What is the U.S. posture uh, with Iran, Iran's regional uh, and international outreach? What do you think the U.S. position is? Well, to start with the Iranian-Saudi renormalization agreement, there was not exactly a unified response from Washington. I think we have to draw a distinction between how the Biden administration responded and how a number of lawmakers responded. The Biden administration, I think, has been sort of cautiously optimistic about this renormalization deal in not necessarily viewing it as problematic while also seeing it as potentially positive from the standpoint of U.S. interests. The fact that China brokered this agreement is not necessarily a bad thing from the White House's perspective. I think um, the Biden administration believes that if China can make some diplomatic moves in the Middle East that can increase stability in the region, that's like I said, not necessarily bad for U.S. interests. However, I think when we talk about the number of lawmakers, especially Republicans who are consistently hawkish toward the Islamic Republic, the renormalization agreement was troubling for a few reasons. First, the fact that China brokered it. They saw that as something very negative, believing that U.S. and China uh influence in the Middle East always plays out in a zero-sum game, meaning that anytime China can gain some greater leverage in the region, that should always be seen as happening at the expense of U.S. influence. And also many of the anti-Iran, anti-Islamic Republic hawks in Washington have um, long seen, excuse me, have long seen the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia as a very important bulwark against the expansion and consolidation of Iranian influence in the Arab world. So they have had fears about the consequences of reconciliation between Riyadh and Tehran, worrying about the ways in which this improvement in bilateral relations between these two regional actors could maybe make Iran a little more confident and possibly we could see Iran acting uh, in some more aggressive or some more bold ways in the region. Right. You know, it's a, it is a difficult position in some respect, objectively looking at the U.S. posture. I'm going to say letting China broker deals like this, it, it could harm U.S. interests, uh, while it's also dealing with the problem that the U.S. simply doesn't have time for the bandwidth to deal with right now, going into an election year, right? Uh, they don't want to make Iran a campaign issue. Uh, so if if China's making some overtures, fine. But obviously, um, in the West, a, lo a lot of the folks in the Iranian diaspora are lobbying their political leaders to take a harsh stand uh, with Iran. Uh, how, I mean, every country has to act in its own best interest, and they will. Uh, does human rights or any of the Iran's domestic um, uh, turmoil play a part in how uh, either the U.S. or these foreign governments react to Iran's overtures? Do they care? Well, yes, it certainly is relevant. And the Biden administration has definitely made it clear that it sees some sort of a diplomatic compromise with Iran is the only way to deal with uh, the nuclear brinkmanship between Iran and the West. 
while the Biden administration maintains the same stance as its predecessors, that all options are on the table, which is a, a threat to use military force if the U.S. leadership would deem that necessary. The Biden team definitely would prefer to resolve this nuclear issue in a diplomatic way. Now, when the uh, situation in Iran started to heat up and it became very ugly starting in September of last year, it certainly made it more politically difficult for the Biden administration to negotiate uh, some sort of a revival of the JCPOA with the leadership in Tehran. My personal opinion, and maybe you have some viewers who look at it differently, but my personal opinion is that it's best for the U.S. to compartmentalize some of these issues and to view human rights certainly as a very important issue, but also the nuclear file is a separate issue and to not link these together. It's clearly in the interests of the United States and I would argue all countries worldwide to see to it that Iran never develops a nuclear weapon. And I don't think that the U.S. decision made by Trump in May 2018 to pull the U.S. out of the JCPOA unilaterally has done anything to decrease the chances of Iran developing a nuclear weapon. To the contrary, since then, we have seen Iran's nuclear activities escalate. So I definitely think um, it's in the interests of Washington to get some sort of a deal. And I know that's very difficult. Many people would say it's naive to even imagine that as possible. But as, as challenging as that is, I think some sort of a diplomatic arrangement that results in Iran uh, not only freezing, but ideally reversing its nuclear program would be uh, the best move to make. And I would also argue that the U.S. imposing these sanctions on Iran and the U.S. Um, pulling out of the JCPOA, none of that has done anything to improve Iran's human rights record. To the contrary, I would say that the maximum pressure campaign from the Trump administration only empowered the worst of the worst of the elements within Iran's government. And I just see no evidence that the maximum pressure campaign against Iran did anything to make the human rights situation any better. Right, thank you. And uh, you're right, I mean, uh, we see what's happening, at least from the administration point, I think a lot of people in the diaspora wanted uh, the US to follow up on the rhetoric of the maximum pressure, but I don't think anyone supported military action. It was always, you know, maximum sanctions, ma you know, throwing out uh, ambassadors all over the Western countries, uh, um, but none of that has resulted in Iran behaving any better, certainly with its own people. Uh, and no Western country really have a, has any power to get Iran to either free political prisoners or or uh, improve its free speech position, not you know uh, arrest journalists and, and uh, activists as we are observing. So. Uh, Given that scenario, that probably the movement is towards some form of uh, conversation or compartmentalization of the human rights issue and uh, the nuclear issue, uh, going into an election year, I mean, what can we expect in the next six to 12 months that's meaningful other than avoiding dealing with Iran? Because right now it's a problem. 
as an administration, I just want to get reelected. I don't want to deal with open a can of worms in the next six to 12 months. I mean, how is that these two things are going to reconcile? Yeah, well, I think it's important to note that the Biden administration's foreign policy focus is really on Russia, Ukraine, China, and Taiwan. Not saying the administration doesn't care about the Middle East or Iran, but it's receiving less attention. Uh, the Middle East is receiving less attention from the Biden administration than it did from some of the previous administrations. I think the Biden team would very much like to see to it that nothing unfolds in the Middle East that requires the U.S. to become involved militarily. One of the legacies of the invasion and occupation of Iraq is that it's very, very politically costly for any White House to send U.S. forces into the region and put them into harm's way. So bringing this back to Iran, I think if the Biden administration can secure some sort of a, a win on um, reviving the JCPOA or reviving it in some form or coming to some sort of agreement, maybe we won't call it the JCPOA, we'll call it something else. But if the Biden administration can secure some sort of an arrangement that freezes and ideally reverses Iran's nuclear program, I think that's something that Biden and his administration would very much like to see before November uh, 2024. However, at the same time here in Washington, uh, when you look at the discourse surrounding Iran, that will be portrayed as sort of appeasing the Iranian government, or it will be portrayed by Republicans as the Biden administration being weak. But nonetheless, um, the Biden team is very determined to resolve this nuclear issue without having to fire a shot. You're right. Uh, I think if uh, there is some secret deal uh, that may get announced between here, you know, now and November of next year, uh, it's low hanging fruit for Republicans uh, to attack the administration. And frankly, as you mentioned, I think uh, also a, a source of great uh, concern for the Iranian diaspora who are supportive of the maximum pressure campaign and not any kind of deal without human rights embedded in it. Um, that's That was what a lot of people felt was the problem with JCPOA. And if this new version takes root and completely ignores Iranian domestic affairs and, and human rights violations, and uh, then it will meet with profound, I think, diaspora objection. Whether that will lead to anything like uh, politicians not getting reelected, I don't know. Uh, but certainly Iranians are getting active in Washington, as you know, uh, and they have been active very passionately, social media worldwide, talking with members of Congress, members of parliaments in the UK, Canada, France, uh, Germany, all the Western powers, especially the opposition groups within those uh, governments seem to be receptive to the diaspora's message. Um, I don't know if the leadership will make decisions based on that, but they certainly are receptive to it. Um, in the last few seconds we have left, uh, Giorgio, any final thoughts before we sign off? Well, I certainly think that if some sanctions are going to be lifted on Iran, that will certainly add to either the real or perceived legitimacy of the Islamic Republic. And I think among um, Iranians who live in the U.S. and other Western countries, that's a a very big concern. Um, I would just ask, though, what are the other options? Yeah. I 
am not convinced that a continuation of maximum pressure policies can lead to anything that's positive from the standpoint of regional or global security. And my final thoughts to leave you with um, have to do with the ways in which the United States dealt with the Soviet Union. Of course, the human rights record in the Soviet Union was atrocious. So many political prisoners, um, but it was also in the security interests of the U.S. and the international community to see to it that um, Washington and Moscow were able to broker accords that limited the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And that's really what's at stake here, too, with Iran. Right. Thank you so much. I, you know, by contrast, it seems like the Soviet Union back then was a little bit more responsible, if that's even the right word yeah. to say it, than Iran's government is uh, or has been. So uh, I hope uh, those historical lessons come to fruition and and uh, we do move towards some constructive freedom for the people of Iran, however which way it happens, maximum pressure, some other form of agreement, however which way it happens, nobody wants uh, Iranians to be safe and prosperous as they deserve, uh, I think, than the diaspora now. So, Giorgio Cafiero, thank you so much for your time. Please come back and see us soon. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you.